0: You're listening to Resurrection South Austin, a community of faith, learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at resaustin.com.
1: Tonight, uh, we're going to hopefully together land the plane on some of the things, this kind of walk we've been doing through the liturgy. I've had a really good time with you all doing this, and I, I you guys have been troopers with me in doing it, so I hope you're Getting something out of it I hope it's blessing you um, where am I there we go let us go forth into the world rejoicing in the power of the spirit do you all know the response thanks be to God hallelujah hallelujah do you know this part in the liturgy just ring a bell the very last it's like the very last part right okay This is the part this is the moment that i want to explore with you today as kind of a summary and kind of this really strange place where we find ourselves standing at the edge of this sacred space that we're in looking out into the neighborhood something really significant is about to happen here but before we do that i want to tell you a story when and i think this is when i was converted to not Anglicanism necessarily, you know, and when people, um, when you ever hear folks making a big deal about Anglicanism, it's really not a big deal about Anglicanism for Anglicanism's sake. It's always making a big deal of the church kind of in its, in the way it's always been, being converted to this ancient way of being a Christian. There's this, there's a story that I think I can pinpoint of when this happened to me. We were in LA, Pasadena, well, we were in Mission Viejo at this church. We drove an hour. My wife made sure that um, I knew that it was an hour drive. And um, we were going to our um, first Anglican church. And thanks, Chelsea.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and we, dri- we, had, we had all these kids. So we drive down the Mission Viejo from Pasadena. It's like an hour and 15 minutes. And the incentive for them is what we'd get in and out on the way back. And so our kids remember when we started going to <laughs> Anglican churches, it's like, oh, yeah, when we would get in and out all the time. Like, yeah, that works. <laughs> well, at this church, we'd go there um, every Sunday, and one time after the service, the the priest in charge said, "Hey, Sean, can you go?" To, and he gave me the patent, the bread, the the plate with the bread on it, and he said, "Go bury this behind the building." So I was like, "Okay." I didn't really, honestly, think much of it at the time. And they were meeting in a hotel, so it was like kind of strange to go behind the hotel. And so I go behind the hotel, and I have this like you know golden plate that's full of bread, and um, I walk around the hotel trying to find like behind the dumpsters, kind of some place that looks somewhat like reverent. It's not just like a dumpster back there. And I, I squat down and I start scooping out the dirt from just like a loose place of dirt, just start scooping it out with my hand. And I'm thinking, this is really weird. <laughs> this is like, what am I doing? And I, I think I must have been sitting there for a while, just like kind of tossing dirt, thinking <laughs> I said, what is this? And it hit me. I'm digging a grave with my hand. Wow. For what? And then it, it occurred to me like a ton of bricks. What if this is true about the bread? Do they really believe that Jesus is present? Is this really him? Why would they have me bury him? Now, in Anglican tradition and really just Christian tradition, you either consume all of the bread or you bury the bread. And you do this out of reverence because of what's <laughs> attached to it. Right, what, what we believe, what, what's attached to that practice is this belief that Christ is really present. That we, we actually get to take him at his word. This is my body. We don't totally get that, but okay. And so as I'm in the back behind, in, in Mission Viejo, behind some hotel, digging out a grave by, by hand, placing these crumbs of bread, getting every, and he told me, make sure you get every last bit of these crumbs off this plate. I thought, this is super weird. These people must really believe this. And hit me. What if this is true? Now, just like let's suspend our modernist categories of things, our scientific method. Like all, let's just suspend that for a moment and just ask ourselves the question: What if this is all true? What if the words of Jesus, "This is my body," is somehow true? I think everything would change if that was the case. I think we'd find ourselves doing some really bizarre things, like making little graves with our hand behind a hotel in L.A. Mm -hmm. At at the very end of the liturgy, when we say this this sending kind of announcement, let us go forth into the world, it's not just some sort of cap on the end of the sentence, but it's actually this moment in which we get to kind of, uh, before we go out into the world, say, pause one more time and ask a really simple question, what if this is all true? What does this change? coming from the table, we can ask, for instance, what have we received just now? And by receiving this, let's just say it's true. What have we therefore become at the table? You with me? Like, if this is true, what we have received is the body of Christ. We've consumed it. Now, what have we become? We've become living members of his body. What if, folks, what if that's actually true? And now we stand at the doorway of the church looking into the world, about to be sent out. What's going to happen? What are we going to be caught up in? Where is Jesus going to lead us? What's going to happen? I think is really interesting. All of these questions are actually the questions that begin mission. When we talk about like being a missional church, like I know that's super vogue and like, hip and cool, and I'm hoping you're getting a little bit of a different imagination that can fill in this word missional. What I'm suggesting here is that to truly be missional, we have to actually be sacramental. Mission and missional at its best is actually, I believe, sacramental. What do we mean by sacramental? The invisible God taking on flesh and blood and dwelling among us. The grace and the mercies of God being promised to us and realized in material and invisible and invisible ways, sacramental. A sign and a foretaste of something that is so incomprehensible and beyond even just this sign, and yet it's there somehow, that sacramental. What I'm saying, to actually go out into the world and be on mission, to be truly missional, we actually have to first become the kinds of people that think it's possible that the invisible God would take on flesh and blood and dwell among us, we have to become the kinds of people who would receive the gift of grace in Holy Eucharist. Like, that's a possibility. And we have to become the kinds of people that are willing to admit and just entertain for just a moment that it's possible that even we, us schmucks, with all this kind of baggage, even with all of our doubt, with all of our problems, that somehow we have been kind of co-opted into the body of Christ. We've become living members connected to him. Only then can the people of God be truly missional. Because here's the, here's the difference. Here's why. Missional without God, what is that? I don't know, actually. Think about this. What is mission apart from God? It's like campaigning for something. To truly be missional, we're actually suggesting that we're working with God. We're going with him. He's not departing from us, but he always remains with us. Okay, this is interesting. Cool. But is this biblical? Let's. What is the most famous missionary passage in all of the Bible? You tell me. Matthew twenty-eight. Let's open it up. Let's check it out. Matthew
3: twenty-eight.
1: Yeah, we thirty. We're gonna read a little bit more broadly than that because I I want you guys to see something. We're gonna start at verse sixteen. Matthew twenty-eight, verse sixteen. Now, keep in, mind, keep in mind this. We're talking about worship as the birthplace for mission. We're talking about to be truly missional, we have to first be sacramental. We have to be these people who have been shaped into this kind of reality and joined in the body of Christ. Now, let's read Matthew twenty-eight sixteen together. Now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, the mountain which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go th- therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Do you all see, I didn't see this for like most of my life. But now let's... Just considering what we've been talking about, do you all see... That mission has been born out of a place of worship, even in this most famous Great Commission passage. <laughs> the disciples, first of all, they saw Jesus. We talked about seeing the presence of God, discerning his presence. They saw him. They worshiped him. They adored him. And yes, some doubted. And that like basically covers all of us, right? That includes everybody. And some doubted. And from that place, from that place of worship and adoration and seeing Jesus communing with him, being near him, out of that place, Jesus makes this like, really incredible statement. He says this, all authority in heaven and on earth. Why include both realms? Because that's where it's actually all headed. He's bringing them together, heaven and earth. And his authority, his authority is comprehensive, actually, in both. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. Okay, we've heard this before. Go therefore and make disciples. How, Jesus? How should we make disciples? This has nothing to do with sacraments, Sean. What does it say next? Baptizing them. Interesting. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so baptism, I'll give you that. And teaching them everything that I've commanded you. What has Jesus commanded us? Be baptized. Do this in remembrance of me. Love God, love your neighbor. You remember like, all of these commands? Certainly we can say with some confidence that what's in view here is Jesus commanding his disciples, whenever you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Keeping the Lord's Supper. Interesting. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Living holy lives. All of those commands that Jesus has issued to his disciples. And as if to kind of punctuate this at the end, he says, And and remember, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Mm -hmm. Do you all remember the story when Jesus was resurrected and those guys were were walking on the road to Emmaus? and, And then this guy showed up and they started talking. And like, didn't you know what happened in Jerusalem a minute ago? And like... It was crazy, you know, and then they, they came to this place and they, they had this meal and they've been talking to this stranger the whole time. And in the breaking of bread, they realized who's this person, Jesus, you have all over the new Testament, these cues that the early church, because it's so obvious to them, I think are giving to us saying, Jesus is with us and not in just some sentimental kind of way, but he's with us in the ways that he's actually said he would be with us. This is my body. This is my blood. Surely I'll be with you to the end of the age. He sends us his spirit. It fills his church. There's this presence from which our missionary activity in the world springs from. Y'all, this is the worshiping church that's being described. This isn't really actually that profound. This is like the oldest play in the book for Christian missionaries. And so, as a people, when we come out of worship and we ask ourselves, what have we received? What have we become? Who have we come in contact with? We have to say we've become Christians. We've become the church. We've become the disciples of Christ. When we come in contact with Jesus in the sacraments, when we come, in, 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 when we come near to him and, and join in him in union and baptism, we don't say, when we placed our hands in the wounds of Jesus' side, in effect, we don't say, well, how interesting liturgy and sacraments, that's cool. We say what Thomas said when he placed his hands in the wounds of Jesus. My Lord and my God. This is, you know you're doing liturgy and sacraments right when Lord have mercy and my Lord and my God are are bursting from your lips. You know that you're getting it when every moment in the liturgy is one step closer to union with Christ. You know you're doing something right when the worship life of the church is actually drawing us into the presence of God. And this was the case with the early church. This is what Christians have been doing as they worship. So at this time at the table, we have come in contact with God, yes. Yes, we've received something, we've become something. But we don't stay there. I have this really profound love that Jesus has for Everybody else in the world, we don't stay there. He's not content to even just leave us at this table. But we do know that the conditions of our life have changed at this table. Something has changed. The conditions of our life have changed at the the baptismal font. And now we're being sent into the world with that baptismal water still, still totally dripping off of us. Like when you get out of the shower, when you have kids, they get out of the shower and they don't know. Like, step on the mat, grab your towel, try not to make a mess and there's just like water all over the bathroom. This is what I picture like Christian missionaries to be coming out of the baptismal water and just dripping it everywhere. Incense, like this, the aroma of the kingdom just totally vaping off of their clothes. This residue of these practices that you can tell that these people have been with Jesus kind of stuff. Now sent into the world. We've come to receive Eucharist And in this really strange turn of events, we have become the Eucharist. We've come to receive this broken bread and poured out wine in order to become the body that's broken and the blood that's poured out into the city, into the streets of Santa Cruz even. We are those living members sent out from the table into the world. One way for us to how should I say this? I want to, I want to set up a cue for you guys in the liturgy. Because, uh, and I don't want this to always just be some like, super um, intense mental activity where you've got to remember all these things that Sean said to really get the liturgy. Because if I miss out, if I'm not feeling it, then it's not working. That's not at all what I'm saying. There will be plenty of times and there have been for me when I'm not feeling it. And the wonderful thing about the liturgy is that it's not dependent on how you feel about it, but it's actually this motion that catches you up in it. So yes, make yourself aware to these things. Don't hurt yourself. Surrender yourself to this motion of the gospel that's leading us out into the world. But remember, this isn't actually subject to your reasoning, and it's not even subject to your feeling, which is so freeing, so comforting, so helpful. In fact, all of this missionary activity of God's people being sent into the world isn't even our promise to fulfill. It's not our burden to actually accomplish. No, this is Christ's promise. When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. This is in John chapter 12, verse 32. Jesus says, I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Mission, the mission of God that we've been brought into. This is his promise to fulfill. And as people of God, we have actually become his witnesses, we become living members of his body. And as we see the cross processing or recessing, however you call that, out the doors of the church, we remember we're not actually going, like we're not saying, OK, folks, I need you to try really hard. Good luck. We'll see you next week. Go in peace. No, Jesus says, and surely I'll be with you to the end of the age. And so what do we see in the liturgical moment to cue this up in our imaginations? Well, we see the cross leading. We see the banner of Christ's authority heading out into the world under which we operate. Not under our own authority, but under his Did you know that those uh these these big poles with like symbols on them? The early church saw how the Roman Empire and like really governing officials would use this in the first century. These were called standards, and so they have a big pole with a banner or some symbol. And when a dignitary, someone walked into the room, they would have this huge procession with the symbol of their authority so that everyone would know this dude's a big deal. You should probably bow. So when the Christians see this, they go, you know what, we got plans for that. Jesus is Lord. And so they put the sign of the cross on this standard of authority, and they march it. And this is why, if you've, if you've ever done this, they march it all over the neighborhood. They march it into the church. Special services in the season, like in Pe- uh, Palm Sunday or Easter, there will be processionals around the neighborhood as a way of kind of declaring, here's what's up. Jesus is king, mm-hmm. even over this neighborhood. And so as this symbol of authority is heading out into the world, we are reminded that we don't go out on our own authority, but under the authority of heaven and earth that's been given to the Son of Man, the Messiah who's leading us out into the world. How comforting is that? How wonderful is that? His banner of authority hangs over us. Michael Ramsey, the 100th Archbishop of Canterbury, one of my heroes, he said, basically, I'll paraphrase him, what more missional thing can we do than to become the body of Christ and then be sent out into the world under his authority. You tell me, folks. Is there a better imagination for missional than that? I don't think that there is. I think this is mission at its best, actually. And folks, when we wear mission this way, it actually makes beautiful people because it's not putting mission and evangelism and like, Go convert some people on the shoulders of people, on their authority, in their own gifts, in their own ability. But it's saying, would you just cooperate with Jesus? Would you just like go with the spirits the the gifts that the Spirit has given you? Would you just follow him out into the world, into the streets? And when you see him, would you tend to his presence? And by the way, you've gotten really good at that because you've tended to his presence where he's declared himself to be. Now you can recognize him. You can recognize his voice. What a a wonderful, non-anxious, non-oppressive way of actually winning people to the gospel. Isn't that relieving? That's actually like good news for you too. That you don't have to save people from hell by having the best pitch. Come on. Instead, we get to tend to Jesus in the Eucharist and in baptism and in his presence and go out into the world as people who have been with him and continue to be with him. Father Rob was talking about at the beginning of all this. How does this help my union with Christ and how does this help me help others in their union with Christ? The best thing you can do for yourself and for others is just to tend to Jesus where you know he's, he's like promised himself to be. Start there. The best thing you can do for your friends that you want to know Jesus so desperately is to first and foremost tend to Jesus' presence where he's already promised you, look, I'm going to be right here. Tend to him there. And your friends, your neighbors, your family, they will know and they will see that you have genuinely been with Jesus. And it's true. So we can go into those ordinary places, and we can be surprised at those places where Jesus like pumps up, where the Spirit of God speaks to us and say, hey, watch, pay attention. I have a story of this. Not too long ago, I was um, eating breakfast in the morning with my five-year-old, Braylon, how old is she? Four? Okay, close enough. <laughs> Sitting there, and she, she I don't know if you know four-year-olds, but sometimes they don't make sense. And this one is is. Like crazy, like life of the party, huge personality just bursting forth with things to say. And so it's like way too early to be talking. Uh, And my my little Braylon is sitting at the the breakfast table um, telling me something. I I have no idea what she's saying. And I've got things to do. And so I'm like, Braylon, and right when I was about to cut her off and get on with my life, I felt like the Lord said to me, would you tend to my presence in your daughter? (laughs) I about lost it. Just like this. And I looked into her eyes and I listened to every single word she said and thought, Lord, I want to be able to see you like this. In these super, this is breakfast. This is like 7 a.m. on a school day. Jesus is here. He's promised to be present in the least of these, in these unexpected, ordinary places. And then he calls to me out of his mercy because I should know better. These are my own kids. And he calls to me and says, would you just pay attention? I've I've placed this child right in front of you. Tend to her. So I did. And it didn't even seem so long. It was actually really wonderful. I didn't have to like put up with her. But I was at my heart was converted. I was changed because I could recognize that Jesus was with her. And that what she had to say mattered to him. And it should matter to me, even if I couldn't understand it. What are those places in your life where you have like really inconvenient moments and in places and people that perhaps Jesus is saying to you, Would you just tend to my presence in this person? I know they're kind of annoying. I know they're a little strange. I know their personality is like maybe not quite palatable for you. Maybe, maybe you don't want to be associated with this kind of person, but but Jesus wants to be associated with this kind of person. <coughs> Where are those places in your everyday life that you can tend to his presence? And can I just call out, not just because this is the story that I gave, but if you have children, and by the way, if you are a baptized member of the church, whether you have children or not, you have children. You're spiritual mothers and fathers. You have made vows to help these kids be raised up in the way of the Lord. So if you have children, all of you, We've actually got to... Our mission should first and foremost, before before we start thinking of like really extravagant ways of reaching our neighborhood, we should actually tend to God's presence in the things and the people and those children that he's actually placed in our homes, under our care, in our responsibility. How would that change our priorities in our daily life and in our community if children weren't so much a distraction in the pews, but we realized this is the wealth of the church? This is like... Jesus loves these children. In fact, he threatens all of the adults, saying, if you get in the way, if you do not let them come to me, you'll have to deal with me. This is how much he loves them. What if mission, as as mature Christian adults, was first and foremost to our children, raising them up in the way of the Lord? Have you ever considered that, like, a nursery is missionary? It really is. Have you ever considered the, like, kids' catechism, that, like, tending to our children, not, not putting them away in the service, but this is actually, like, no, come be a part of us. You are a Christian. You are a part of the family. That that's missionary, even within our own houses. So I just want to call that out, because I think that gets quite overlooked all the time. When I moved to Austin, we had this, I was, uh, we had lunch with these pastors, and the, the question was, what's the most missional thing you're doing to disciple your, like, how are you discipling your people for mission? And they all go around the, the table and they're like, well, we have like the alpha course and all these awesome things. And I'm like, like we haven't even started really doing much as a church. And we just planted and have, haven't got, I haven't got much to say. And so I'm sitting there and they, it comes to me and I'm the token guy in a collar, the priest, like, oh, here, here we go. You know, Sean's going to say something. And uh, before I could really even think about it, what came out of my mouth was we baptize our children. That's the most missional thing we do. <laughs> And of course, all these like Baptist brothers that I love, they're like, come on, man, why you got to bring baptism of babies into this? But it was, it's true though. We want to win our children. We want to bring them into the fold. We want, we want them to be near Jesus with us, right? That's got to be on our top priority list when we consider our work in the world with Jesus. So we come to this end of the service, we see this recessional, we follow this banner of Christ's authority into the world. He is with us, he goes before us, and we have now eyes to see, we have ears to hear, we can recognize his presence and tend to him out in the world. The liturgy is over now, right? No. Even for the early church fathers, they understood that what's about to happen is just the liturgy after the liturgy. The liturgy actually goes on. In fact, the incarnation of Christ, this gospel reading this come and dwelt among us, is actually it doesn't really quite stop there, the early church fathers would say. It continues into the world. The incarnation is prolonged. It's extended. This table that we see that we think has borders and limits, this table actually extends into the world. Everything about what we just did translates directly into our neighborhood. None of it is irrelevant. It's actually way more relevant than anything else we could think of to do. So now when you invite your friends over and you have a table, maybe you meet at a pub and you have a table, all of a sudden the hospitality that you have received from God now translates to your hospitality that you extend to others. Now you're cooperating with God, handing his grace off to others as if it's endless, and it is. What a wonderful way of being witnesses in the world, extending the table of God. Where are those tables? Where are those places to, to, to see the incarnation extended into the neighborhood, to hear the voice of Jesus, to recognize him in other people, to tend to his presence? Where are those places in our lives? I hope you're seeing how our worship life as sacramental liturgical Christians, which is it's really like, seriously, not, not, it's nothing new. This is kind of like the oldest way of being a Christian. This is like mere Christianity, as C.S. Lewis would describe it. This isn't anything flashing or new. But I'm hoping you're seeing that all of this, the whole of this enacted gospel drama that we've been caught up in, we've learned the postures of a body, the language, the sight, the ears, the whole thing actually applies to God's work in the world. And now we can become the kinds of people who are capable of participating with him, just plainly cooperating with him, knowing that it is possible that God is in the world and that he's up to something and that we can participate. We have tasted and seen that God is good. And now with that confidence, we can go into the world and cooperate with him and participate with him. I hope that, um, I hope this stimulates some new questions. I hope this doesn't actually end this conversation, but I hope that you all, when you worship, you're looking, you're aware. At least you have some curiosities. I wonder why Rob's wearing a purple chasuble today. What does that mean? And in everything, every rock that you have to overturn, because I've only touched on a few things, it's loaded, people. Everywhere you go in the liturgy, everywhere you go where there's beauty and there's the gospel being adapted, every stone you turn over, you're going to find Jesus in it in the liturgy. Everything that we do leads to Him. And if it doesn't, Rob will be the first one to throw it away. Right? It's all about Jesus. And this beautiful thing about our worship life together, as, as we turn to him and see him in everything and pursue union with him, he releases us into the world again with him to do this in turn with others, to bring others into his fold. If you want to be a missionary church, you have to first be a worshiping church. If you want to tend to his presence in the world, we've got to learn to tend to his presence here where he's declared himself to be. Amen? Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for letting me take you on a tour and brainstorm and think out loud with you. Um, this has been a, a, a really, uh, it's always a super helpful learning experience for me to kind of um, roll these ideas out and share them with other people. Thank you for being so kind to me. Um, but it's also, can I just say, it's been a real, it's been an incredible blessing for Michelle and I to be a part of Redeemer for a moment again, a very different Redeemer but like such a, like a better redeemer in so many ways, a beautiful community, and I'm so encouraged to see what God's doing in my you. And I want you to know two things. Here's what I want you to know. One, uh, the priest that you have is probably the best in the ACNA, and I would, I would love to be in his church. You guys have an amazing priest. I can't think of a better one. Amazing. You get my point, okay, I'll move on. And two, you're not alone in this kind of strange recovery of ancient christianity curious about like how does this apply in mission in the world as evangelicals coming into like catholic feeling tradition you this is you're actually I, I wish you could see how how uh, big this movement is of people just like this churches just like this and i think god is actually up to something and so i hope all of this is honestly super encouraging to you to say keep going keep digging Don't turn away because it's strange. You're strange. Look into this and find Jesus and then cooperate with him in the world. I hope that gives us a new imagination for for what God's doing in the world and in our lives. But anyways, thanks for letting me be gushy too. Thanks for having me here. I I really appreciate that. Is there um, any thoughts or any questions? I'm curious as we we process this this weekend, are there any reflections? Um, How are we doing on time, Rob? Have I blown through it? I don't know. 730. Oh, sweet, dude. Let's take some questions. <laughs> Brother Jonah. What was the uh, Michael Ramsey book? Oh, The, the Gospel, Gospel in the Catholic Church. Uh, wow. Look at this section. What's that?
3: That was, a, that was an interesting
1: thought. Okay. Oh, oh, and it's not thought like... The Catholic church has. It's not like Roman Catholic Church. It's like Catholic in terms of like universal church. And it's an incredible book. You, you Check out a section on like Paul. You'll find mm-hmm. what I'm talking about. Michael Ramsey, The Gospel and the Catholic Church, right? That's what it's
4: called. Yeah, it's really good. Super good. It's maybe a little bit like dense. It's dense. It's an academic piece. Or not really academic, but it's yeah, it's dense. It's It's good. It's good for
1: your brain. It's not like devotional reading, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. Yes, quiz questions. (laughs) Why not?
2: (laughs) I can't stop you. (laughs)
1: I see so, your hand. We, do you really yeah. want to ask this question? Can we do that as you're stalling for people to cross? No, it's,
5: it's important. I just want to ask it. Okay. Where is Jesus present to us?
1: Are you asking me after all this? What
5: did you just say? Where is Jesus present
1: to us? He's, pro- he's present where he's promised himself to be present. Now, this, let's, let's just, this is a good question. Let's just take us on a tour real quick. I heard this song um, on like, Christian contemporary radio yesterday or the other day, that's, and it got passed around Facebook and everyone was like jamming on it, and the lyric was, "Christ has no body but yours." And all these people are like, "Yeah, that's so good." I was like, "Yeah, it's a really beautiful song, but it's not true. It's like wrong. And I had to be that guy on Facebook. I try to do it super nice, like hey, it's beautiful, but you know
2: uh,
1: I never, I never jump in, but it seemed like a big one.
3: It's quite a.
1: Yeah, it's actually, it is an old hymn, but, it's, but in the ways that the, it was being portrayed, it wasn't quite the full picture. Why is that? And here's, here's why I'm bringing it up to answer your question. The, pres, the, the body of Christ is ascended at the right hand of God the Father. He sent his spirit into his church, which has become his body. Paul talks about this in, in Romans, and, and Michael Ramsey points this out. The, when Paul is... Um, pulled over by Jesus on his road road to Damascus, right? Remember when he becomes blind? What does Jesus say to Paul? Why are you persecuting me? Paul had never seen Jesus. He had never encountered Jesus. He was was persecuting his church, his body. And this was for Jesus himself. And in fact, um, the word body in the New Testament doesn't mean like body of water, like soma is the Greek word. It doesn't mean as we would think of like body of people or body of water. It means a single entity. It's a single thing. It's not a collection of people. It's a thing. And so for the church to be called the body isn't a reference to a collection of people with like, like ideas. It's actually a reference to the singular body and presence of Christ. Interesting. It's a great mystery. How is Christ's body ascended to the Father, and we are with him because humanity he has taken on. And yet at the same time, his spirit has come and birthed his church, the body. Then there's another sense, if that wasn't like mysterious enough, in which um, Christ's body is given to us in the sacrament. And in fact, we are joined with his body in baptism. Paul talks about this in Romans as well. In baptism, we're buried with him and raised with him. Put into the watery grave, and then we join with him in the resurrection. We become a member of his body, and we come to the table to feed on his body. So this is like not a simple way of answer. I, it's the most simple way I can say that. There's a lot of ways to talk about this, but what we can say, and this is why I say, where is Christ? Well, he's certainly at the right hand of God the Father, and yet we've still got to wrestle with the fact that he's promised, "This is my body." And at the same time, in the celebration of the Eucharist, the consumption of his body, the Church becomes his body. That's a great mystery, Um, but I think we can still say that he's there. Uh, I know that. I I hope that doesn't feel like a cop out, other than to say it's a huge mystery, but he's promised to be there, and so he is. We've got to take his word for it, right? Rob, would you you add anything?
4: Christ has promised to be present in the sacraments in ways that are unique to the sacraments. Uh So when we're having a temptation to say, I feel like I worship better in the redwoods than I do with the Eucharist. I feel Jesus there more than I feel Jesus in the bread and wine. What do you say to that?
1: Well, you could say... Certainly, God has revealed Himself generally in creation. We see this in Romans one, like creation, like proclaims the glory of God. Yeah, of course, you're seeing beauty, you're seeing attributes of, God, of what has like come off of God. It's like you're seeing His attributes, but it's a quite different thing than when Jesus says, "This is My body." It's like you're seeing the attributes of God, perhaps in creation, but in the sacrament, God is actually offering Himself in His presence, not in some sort of symbolic way, not in some sort of like attributed way, but really and truly and objectively present. Um, I remember when we first started Redeemer, someone came up to us and said, look, I can have Jesus at home with a glass of wine a lot better. Like, I don't need all this. And it was like, "That's, that's I mean, we hear that, that's okay, sure. You, you think you could, and we don't want to be jerks. And like, hey, thanks for coming. Um, but in, in reality, I, it's not like offensive to us as much as it is like not taking serious what Jesus has said. So we can just turn and say, what has Jesus said about that? Like, it's not our fault he's made things this way, right? He's offered himself truly in the Eucharist.
4: And what's amazing about that is, it's not a fault at all, right? Like, that's actually, sure, yeah. when, we, when we grab our, when our minds grab hold of that, It's not like, sorry, it's this way, but this is just the way Jesus says it is. Mm. It's actually like, that's actually very good news to know that you can objectively approach the body and blood of Christ. You can objectively approach baptism and not be wondering, is this going to work? Because with a a (laughs) glass of wine, all you can do is be like, I hope this works, and if it doesn't, I guess I'll just have another. right? And another. (laughs) And you just kind of hope. And then maybe sometimes you have some sort of feeling, and maybe sometimes you don't. But with the sacraments... It's not really about how you feel, right? There's just something that's an assurance of his presence. It's really
1: quite arrogant to go, but why can't I have him over here? And, I, and what I hear Rob, Father Rob saying is like, wait, are you hearing yourself? God has given himself to you in a particular way. And you're saying, but what about this way? Wait a second. God's given himself to you in the first place.
4: And so extend it now. Sacraments, but you mentioned another place. Christ's body. We become Christ's body. Mm. Christ is present in his church and it's not like some sort of uh, fringe presence where you're like, well I could be a Christian by myself, can I? Mm-hmm. I can go off and do my
1: own thing, can I not, huh? No. <laughs> <laughs> but do you see how the like how the incarnation and this like sense of Christ's presence makes all of these scenarios just seem kind of like, but why would you why would you even want to do that, first of all? And secondly, that's not true.
4: You remember Ralph Wood, Baylor professor, he says, my students come to me and say, but professor, I have a personal relation. With
1: <laughs> get in relation to his person, but yeah. Oh, that's good. You should finish that quote. Sorry, I Sorry. stole the punchline out of him.
4: That's right. Then you need to get into relation with his person, mm-hmm. which is called the church. Because when we say things like, "Well, I can have Jesus without the church," or "I can, I can, I can have my salvation without the church," that's like saying, "I can have my salvation without Jesus. I don't need Jesus to be saved. I got it."
1: But you know what people are thinking right now, Rob? We used to preach together sometimes, and it was fun. This would happen. You know what people are thinking right now, Rob? It's like, but sometimes the church is ugly. Sometimes the church sucks. And Augustine would say, the church may be a whore, but she's still your mother.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Holy (laughs) pray.
1: Yes, the church. Like, yes, people are involved, and it gets ugly. Um, And I know a lot of us have, like, we've experienced, like, the ugly side of churches. But guess what? Like, but we're that ugly side. We're not pointing, like, to them. There's no them. It's us. And the beauty of the church is like that God's included us in the first place. And if we could surrender to him, if we could actually become aware of his presence and cooperate with him, laying ourselves down, offering our bodies as living sacrifices, if we could actually become those kinds of people, then we would continually become what we already are, which is the bride of Christ. And I do think that there's actually a conversion, a second kind of conversion that marks this kind of a person who's come into view of this, this view of the church. One is a conversion to Jesus. And like, we love Jesus. Yes. And like your, the, what's his dude's name? Ralph Wood. Says, well, be, can, you know, like get in relation to this person. I think that's the second conversion. It's in that moment when you realize that the church is not an it. It's not a 501c3, but it's a she. It's a bride. And it's beautiful. And you can't live without it. And you have to be a part of it. There's a second conversion that's coming if you haven't had that. And I hope that in the sacraments and the liturgy, not because people are nice to you, that's nice, or the coffee's good, okay, but that you, rec- you come in contact with Jesus, and you find union with him, and you're caught up in his bride, and you see the beauty of his bride, and you're won over. That's a different kind of conversion, wouldn't you say? Mm. Jonah, sorry. Does any connection with confirmation? Well, I mean, I'm sure it does. Just Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, when someone's like, well, why don't you just tease that out? What do you mean, Jonah?
0: <laughs> which portion of history do we have with confirmation? i not make this complicated. Just tell us no, the right. answer. Brother. <laughs> if baptism is admission into the family of God, is bringing you
4: into the new life and the new family, confirmation is the point at which you are publicly accepting in the same way, not just your family, but the church itself as the church.
1: Mm. Good, yeah. Like, you, you are, it's the ordination of the laity. Mm-hmm. You're the laity. People who have been converted to the church and say, She's beautiful, I want to serve the church the way Christ served the church. That's a good point, John. Was we'll he another hand? Yes, sir. Yes, well, I
3: was thinking, too, that the second conversion is discovering that bride of Christ in the church. That it's neat as the evangelicals come to a historic Mm -hmm. understanding of the bride, the church, and to see the historic church as a beautiful living bride of Christ and for Christ, in that we are living members of him through the Eucharist, through the sacraments. Mm -hmm. And it's nice to see it come alive and build and animated with the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. And that's why I'm happy to see this movement and to see evangelicals me on fire for the historic church.
2: Mm. And it just warms
1: my heart. Me too. And you know what's really encouraging is that evangelicals bring something to the Catholic tradition that's, like, desperately needed. You guys have a certain kind of mix in who you are, and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of part of that stream as well, that really values, like, lively biblical preaching and like personal relationship with Jesus. And at this, like all of that fire has now found a fireplace in the liturgy, in the traditions of the church. And we don't have to worry about things going off and getting crazy because we can actually just turn ourselves to the history of the church and say, how has, script, how has scripture always been interpreted by the church? How have Christians always done this? We have all of this dead family members that get still, to still speak into our lives and guide us as the church. It's really helpful. So if you have like a, a personality preacher who's like, "Let's head off into the woods," you can say, "Has anyone headed off into the woods? No. Let's not do that."
2: <laughs>
1: you know what I'm, I mean? Heading off to the woods—it's you know what I'm saying. Metaphorically, it's like a safeguard actually for the church.
4: Yeah. You, you can call it the democracy of the dead.
1: The democracy of the dead. Jonah and I were talking about that earlier. Yes, sir, Stephen. Next
3: week we saw a great, the 500th anniversary of. Celebration, and I don't know if it'll be celebrated at Redeemer, but I kind of I I want to ask you: You believe, and you've been saying all weekend, that the Eucharist is a gift of Christ's body and blood, right? Been mm. saying all weekend, right? Why then is the liturgy saying there's a definite part where it says our sacrifice of praise.
1: I knew where you're heading.
3: And this, I, you know, that really grates on me because I come from a tradition that I think gets it better because they, what they do is you sound like they, him do too. The words, they do <laughs> the words. We get this of, uh, They do the words of institution, mm-hmm. the Lord's prayer, and boom, they do the communion. Yeah. And I like that because that is a that's a acknowledgement of God's origination initiative, free gift, it doesn't depend on whether we give a sacrifice of praise or not. And after a while, uh, you know, I, I'm fine with it. I'm okay with it, but sometimes after a while I say, you know, we say this every week, and you say it over and over, it, at least for me, seems like it's not fully accepting that grace, that gift, because of our sacrifice of praise.
1: Mm, I see And what
3: I kind of, uh, you know, I, I understand that it's historical. I understand that. But uh, I guess I really want to say God's grace is everything. It doesn't matter what we give as a sacrifice of praise. Or recount the whole Heil gestichka salvation history right. because that's what a lot of the Eucharist is about is recounting that salvation history and that's fine but I think that uh, I don't know I guess I really yeah, I, I guess hear when you. I do communion I kind of go into a quiet place mm. and I thank God I thank Jesus I want to meet Jesus and I'm really really thankful for his forgiveness of my sin yeah. I'm really thankful that He, or God, the triune God, is giving me this, no matter what I do, or say, or do. It's free gift. What do you say about
1: that? I think.
0: Sorry, I, th- I don't know our liturgy that well. Can you-
1: yeah, let me try and rephrase the, the, the question a little bit. Um, how not the grace of God enough? What do we have to offer Him that He's lacking? What can we sacrifice to him that would actually be effective in receiving his grace? Okay. Well, during... you tell me, <laughs> do we have an offeratory? Yeah. We do. So how do we at once, acknowledge, I think here's what I was going to say. I'm going to take a stab at this Rob. And this is like taking a stab at 500 years of like reformation history. Okay. So give me a break. Um, <laughs> I think you can have both and I think it's, they're actually not competing for one another um, so I'll say that and I'll also say in scripture we've got to deal with the fact that Christian sacrifice Paul tells us in Romans 12 1, offer your bodies as living sacrifices there doesn't seem to be some sort of aversion to sacrifice um, and in fact you have like the entire temple system of sacrificial like the sacrificial system that is deeply connected to this relationship with God with Israel so we've got to deal with this what I, what I want to say, I, I don't want to... We should talk more about this offline, but can I say this? Okay. That um, I don't think they exclude one another, and in fact, I think our sacrifice... No, let me start here. Alexander Schmemann, my hero, Eastern Orthodox theologian, he says to be a human, ultimately, to, like truly be a human, isn't to be a knowing being... He doesn't say do this, but I'm going I'm to get to what he's saying. is isn't to be a knowing being, but it's to actually be an, a, a worshiping being. To be human is to worship something. Alexander Schmemann says, to be human is to be a priest, actually, in a sense. To receive the entire created order, the cosmos, from God. To give thanks to him. And then to turn and give it right back. This is the Eucharist. To offer back what God has given to us. And in that sense, we can see how the grace of God is present and active. He has like given us a gift uh, not of our own earning but of his own goodness. He 's like extended a gift to us, and yet it is a sacrifice in some sense, not in some sense it 's like uh, we 're like we have to pain ourselves for it to mean something to God, not, nothing like that, but more as saying, we offer freely and joyfully the sacrifice of praise, the sacrifice of money um, John It was John Wesley, I think who said. Or Charles, I don't know. I think it was John. He said, it's not so much like with giving. It's not so much asking the question, how much much of my money should I give to God? But actually the other way around, how much of God's money should I offer back to him? See how sacrifice and grace are actually working together in that understanding of offering? Even, even these candles, they were bugging me earlier because I was talking and they're burning the whole time. And I'm like, why is that bugging me? Because it's such a waste. Like they're candles don't put those things out. But you know that we're offering something to the Lord. It's called a votive offering. This costs the community something. And you know what? This community is like happy to give that cost to the Lord. And even just some small, like you maybe you didn't even know that. But we're offering these things. To make beautiful vestments that costs something. And it's not like earning salvation. It's not earning God's favor. God's favor has already been given to you. It's a response to this unmerited grace of God that we receive, that we turn and sacrifice joyfully and willingly. And we do so not by skimping, saying, well, that perfume could have been sold and given to the poor the money. Judas, remember that? Yes, it could have been, but the bride, the groom isn't always here. It's always going to be present. And so there's like this tension that we've got to deal with of like lavishly spending upon the Lord, tending to his presence, and beauty matters when we do so, right? Tending to his presence with beauty, with care, with things that are valuable to us, in hopes that actually in that offering, we can, it can be an act of repentance, that that thing doesn't possess us but we actually possess it and give it freely back as an offering to the Lord. I think you can have both. Rob, did you want to add something? or can see you got your finger on
4: I just would want to would add here because I think Stephen's question is so good, I think that we should just know. Where we read so much about Christ's sacrifice being the once and for all sacrifice, we read it in Hebrews, right? That the high priest would stand and day after day offer sacrifice after sacrifice because there's always more sin. So there needs to always be more animal sacrifices. And in Hebrews, it talks about the priest is always standing. Mm. And then Christ offers himself, and he sits down. right? Because there's no more need for sacrifice. Mm. Then, two chapters later, in the same book, Hebrews says, offer a sacrifice of praise. Mm. The fruit of lips that confess his name. Give things to each other show hospitality to one another, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. For the author of Hebrews, those things are not antithetical. They're an outworking of receiving the sacrifice of Christ and then becoming part of his body and doing the same thing to the glory of God within the reality of what Christ has done once and for all. So they're not antithetical. They need to be put together, but we do that through, and we get guided really well by that's and good. To place
1: Wendy. Do you have a question? <laughs> I thought you had, a, I had an arm up a long time ago. I did, I Misa. <laughs> you look at me like, what are you talking about? Oh, now I have a question. <laughs> Go ahead, Misa. As I have walked the
6: Redeemer over five years, I've seen a transition of, you know, grew up Catholic, had the liturgy, the liturgy was very empty, it was hollow, it felt dead. Came into a place where the liturgy was alive and sacred and holy, and breathing. And and now I'm kind of hitting this place where after doing the daily office and and doing the liturgy together in the church, um, I'm noticing that we're we're saying it faster. We have it memorized, or you know, more memorized, and some people more memorized than others. And I'm not I'm not experiencing that newness of it anymore. You know, when it was new, and I think we started out doing it more slowly because we were all less familiar with it. Um, I noticed things like the things that you've been. Thank you so much for sharing because it's really ministered to me because I've just kind of hit that place of it's become so familiar now. And I feel like it's, you know, when I do the day of the office, it's like, I just want to keep stopping it and soak in it. But I have other practices I do too, and I don't have time to do (laughs) all of it, but it's going so fast. And that's how I feel, you know, in church sometimes too. It's like, and, and so instead, I'm saying the words, and like you said, it doesn't depend on my emotions, and it doesn't depend on me thinking through and understanding it all. I know it's doing its work in me, but I don't want it to become rote. I don't want to just go through it without, there's so much in it, there's so much in it, but I feel like I'm not I
1: mean, the depths of it, like I was at first. Can I just tell you that you, you need to, like, not have that burden. If it's okay if it becomes rote. And, in fact, I think our obsession with new things and youth, like, it, it comes with a cost of, like, disposability and immaturity, like, constant immaturity. And I think we've got to become a kind of people that are okay with things getting boring or rote or common. And, um, and in those moments not wanting to be stimulated in some like fresh kind of way but actually having uh, releasing the anxiety that oppressive anxiety to be like entertained but to do the hard long sometimes like not really exciting work of prayer being with Jesus and not not carrying a burden of like this needs to be um, like engaging or something or I think that's actually a burden foreign to Christian worship. In God. Yeah.
4: if it is always new, it's robbing us of an opportunity to grow in faithfulness. It's the, boredom is necessary for your faith. Because boredom and when something becomes old is the point when you're able to say, I will now offer my faithfulness in spite of the fact that I'm not getting any emotional reward. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's an opportunity to begin operating after faithfulness. And so when you read, kind of like the contemplative, uh, mm-hmm. I don't know what you call them, people? Mystics. Mystics, whatever. Um, often what they'll say is they, that, that that ceasing to have novelty is the advancing in the life of prayer. Wow! So you have somebody like Mother Teresa, who when she dies and we all read her, her uh, journals, and and we discover Mother Teresa didn't feel the presence of God. And then the people who don't know the Lord go, see, even she was a faith. And the people who do know the Lord said, See how well she was faithful to him? See how advanced she was? Because yeah. even when she didn't feel some sort of emotional presence, she tended to his presence. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And and check this out, Misa, maybe it's another way of like kind of packaging this. When I find myself doing that, I think, you know the Lord's worth this. Like he's worth the work that I'm putting into this. Even if I don't get something out of it or whatever, isn't, isn't like my praise of Christ, even when I don't feel it, I'm not like, it's not my jam. Isn't he worth that? And there's actually something surprisingly rewarding in offering that, that moment of praise or prayer. When it comes at a cost to my entertainment, I'm like, this is actually getting a little bit closer to what I think worship ought to be. Something about that that's surprising. Yes, sir? Some
5: of us in some traditions have kind of been trained that unless you're feeling a sense of reverence and of specialness, that there's something wrong. Oh, you're totally. Actually doing it wrong, that um, you're not being attentive enough, right? So it's not even a sense of, like, I should be doing
1: There's, yes, there's like, we need to actually put faith in the grace of God that isn't dependent on our, like, it's funny that people go, grace of God, grace of God, but make sure you're doing this right so that you can earn union with God.
2: But I think too, like, we we do want to be intentional. intentional. Certainly. We want to tend to
5: Jesus and when we don't feel like we care anymore, we don't feel like it means it anymore, then we start thinking,
4: maybe I'm not caring
1: anymore. What's wrong with me? I think that's honestly, when we feel that, can I just give you all permission to like repent of that? <laughs> like don't do that. But to actually, in those moments, I think tending to Christ's presence is going to be tending to his, what he's doing in your heart at that moment. And realizing, you know Lord, like, like Mother Teresa, I don't feel you. But, and oftentimes, another helpful way of actually inhabiting that really well is to like, Pray the Psalms enough that it becomes your own prayer life. Because if you read 90% of the Psalms, it's like, God, where are you? I don't feel you. My enemies surround me. I'm in the pit of Sheol. And yet you promised that you would be near. I think the church needs to learn how to grieve, how to lament. And it's probably because we've forgotten how to do that, because probably we've stopped praying the Psalms, that we've put this kind of strange pressure on us to like perform and to not lament, to not grieve, but to be super like yippy skippy and happy in, in the presence of God.
4: And and those moments, it's it's necessary to hear what Sean is saying here, because the moments where things are not fresh and where we do have some sort of like emotional disconnect, that will happen.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: It's not there is no so when we have heard from whatever traditions we've been a part of, intentionally or unintentionally, that you're supposed to always feel a certain way. That's not a helpful thing for us to say, because it's not the way that human beings work. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Like when somebody you love dies, it would be weird if you acted like you didn't care, Mm -hmm. or like it didn't affect you. Like the Christian life actually is full of things that are hard, and that's why we have the Psalms, or an entire book of laments, Mm -hmm. lamentations, because that's part of the Christian life. Mm -hmm. And so to expect that that is not the case is actually the odd thing. To be able to say the Christian life ends up being full of lament Mm -hmm. and full of what St. Ignatius would call desolations. Mm -hmm. There sometimes are desolations, there sometimes are consolations. But if we sit with the Lord in the midst of desolation, if we sit with him there, and at the end of it we're like, that was just really hard. It's not time that was ill spent. It was time that was spent feeling terrible, lamenting with Jesus. And that is part of this life, because the world is still being redeemed. And so we need to have an expectation that life is sometimes like that. And it's not when we're doing something wrong. And it's not the result of a liturgy or of a, a, a particular way of prayer or something like that. Those things, they might be altered or whatever. That's not what, why those things come. That's just a normal part of life, no matter what liturgy But it's good for us to have the expectation in the midst of using the liturgy or any other uh, prayer type that we might be using. It's not going to always be up here. Yeah. Yeah. Like even the seasons of the year, Rob,
1: this makes me think churches like operate here. Typically, like we are jamming, jamming, jamming party time the whole year. That actually like really hurts people. It's not good for humans (laughs) to party constantly. The church has plenty of parties. The church has more parties than people know what to do with. The, the problem isn't the partying. The partying is, the, the problem is not the fast, the feasting, but the fasting. Those other times of the year, like Lent, that's a really good thing for human beings to take on. To, like, do without something. To enter into the wilderness with Jesus for 40 days. To, like, enter the story throughout. There's, like this, there's a story throughout the year that actually takes us with him. And it's not always like jamming up here. It's not always, Jesus, you're like my homie, and we're rocking, you know, till the, till the moon comes, or till the sun comes up. But sometimes it's, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we don't resolve that real quick, and we just kind of go, yeah. But Sean, wouldn't you say that part of the journey, though, is accepting the period's, when you're not feeling that closeness... That's exactly what we are saying. Understanding that he's still there. Absolutely. You're just struggling with something and not feeling him there. But he's still there. He's still there. See, see so it. Accepting that. Sorry, you've been you've had your hand up for like 20 minutes. I just... Get I've it, a,
5: like I've been thinking during this something that I feel like is really obvious. Maybe everyone's already thinking it. But all of this sounds very... Unmysterious if you put it in the context of an actual human relationship. Yeah. So I think that, <laughs> that what you're saying is like you actually know Jesus. Mm-hmm. Because in real relationships with people, we don't feel it all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, like if you consider like those of you who have a beloved, if you consider like the first time you met them, you're like, this is super awesome, and they are awesome, and because of the like grace that they lavish on me by even looking in my direction, mm-hmm. I want to give them gifts. I want to sacrifice for them, right? Because they, like, deign to even be in my presence. Right, that's a good one. You know, ten years later, you've got two kids, and you're like, I don't even remember the last time I looked at your face. (laughs) 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 When's the last time we talked? Um, (laughs) But I've been faithful to you (laughs) in the way i act. I maintain faithfulness even though I'm not, like, feeling it. Why am I not feeling it? Variety of reasons, you know? It's not because I've stopped loving you, or because Mm -hmm. you've stopped being lovable. You've actually left me. You are still present to me, and I'm still doing the faithful acts to you. And like later, when we can get a babysitter, maybe we'll like look at each other in the face. But like, you know, so if you actually think about yeah, Jesus as a person, it's like none of this seems weird. This is how human relationships work, actually.
1: Can, can we extend that to like, and I think you would agree, to friendship? Like, actually, the church is a school of friends or a community of friends, and those commitments should exist even among friends in the church. We should be able to depend on those kind of relationships among us. But yeah. Yeah. Thomas?
0: I I feel like I mean I don't totally yet, but I get the direction we're headed in. But one thing that I've always struggled with is like I grew up like a student leader and then I was a college youth leader or a college just a college leader, but not youth anymore. I was like, I just grew up as a leader and I've seen a lot of my fellow leaders. I feel like I've been told people have been told like this thing of like, you know, like you're not gonna feel all the time, so just like put your head down, get it done. Right. And I've seen a lot of people like end up like getting burned that way. So like I get like you know, everything's not about emotions, but like for me, for many people that I've seen, there is like you can't just say like, oh well just just do it. Like it's gonna work because it doesn't. Like I was, mm-hmm. like we have leaders that burn out, we have leaders that lead the church, we have leaders that are doing the, going through the motions and doing all the right things and checking all the boxes. They're going through the liturgy. So what's the difference, like how do we, as a church, like, you know, like, yeah, we need to persevere, we need to like bring, bring go through, we need to go to church when we don't feel like it. We need to like get past our emotions, but how do we deal with like that balance of, well, maybe I am dying. Like how do we know that balance? Does that mm-hmm. Yeah, sure.
1: I've been, I've been, I think you're describing like burnout. I've been there. Um, I would say that um, like tending to the work um, doesn't always mean busyness. Actually, it often doesn't mean that, but means margin and boundaries, having the kind of humility and not arrogance Mm -hmm. that says, I can't do all this and letting, and like, even when your other leaders are like, put your head down, get it done. I can't do all this. Is is actually humility speaking up and tending to the work that Christ is doing in you. He's the Messiah. We're not right. And I, I think it's hard for us sometimes to um, to not to, to like conceive of a life in which rest and stillness is the place that we operate from with Christ, and not out of a place of like manic busyness. I know that's like a hard thing that like operates against the grain for most like ministry culture. Um, but but in stillness and in rest we actually are doing that is some of the work that God is inviting us to do can you imagine all the times that Jesus was walking around with his disciples and he like would stop you know this happened they would stop and like get away we see this they would like get away leaving the crowds these poor people who just wanted to be with Jesus he's like guys let's get out of here peace y'all take the boat I'll meet you over there in a minute but like getting away being still Not doing things, having an actual Sabbath—these are all like parts of the disciplines of a mature Christian life. But we've got—we've got to have like the kind of community around us that can help us like grow in those ways, and not put all those kind of oppressive burdens on people. That programs and ministries are the performance of the kingdom. It's actually not the case. Uh, we're, we're like blown through time. That was, that was super engaging. Thank you for that conversation. Um, I'll be around. We're not going anywhere. Uh, but we're going to transition now to why am I going
0: You're listening to Resurrection South Austin, a community of faith, learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at resaustin.com.